Hello, my name is Kevin Fernando. I'm a GP partner at North Berwick Health Centre near Edinburgh and also Education Director of GP Notebook Education. Welcome to the current season of GP Notebook Podcast, a bite-sized regular chat for all of us working in primary care. Podcasts will cover clinical tips and hacks, as well as hot topics to help make our lives a wee bit easier, but ultimately to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. I've been recently involved in planning a series of webcasts for healthcare professionals in the UK, which are all taking place during May 2021 as part of what we're calling Chronic Conditions Month. The webcasts, which are being run in association with GP Notebook, are designed to help all of us working in primary care with the significant challenges we've faced in diagnosing and managing chronic conditions over the past year in the midst of the COVID pandemic. Healthcare professionals in UK can register to attend all the events for free at www.chroniconditions.co.uk. So I hope you'll be interested in joining us. And to accompany the, these webcasts, the Chronic Conditions faculty has recorded a series of podcasts in the past few weeks in which we provide some practical advice and suggestions to help you optimise care here and now across a range of conditions. So, without further delay, please enjoy the fifth in this series of special episodes. This one features Dr. Peter Bagshaw and Dr. Steve Holmes. Hello and welcome. I'm Steve Holmes. I'm a general practitioner in the Southwest and have a respiratory and COVID interest. And I'm joined today by Peter Bagshaw, who is a general practitioner and is the Somerset Mental Health CCG lead and has written the book An Older People's Mental Health Primer. What we're going to try to do in this podcast is discuss some of the implications of mental health that have arisen since the COVID pandemic. And this is one of the new podcasts coming out to you as an introduction to the Chronic Conditions Month 2021, which will be held throughout May. During this time, there'll be a whole string of interactive and informative webcasts designed to address the primary care challenges of not only diagnosing, but also managing chronic conditions at a time when COVID-19 has thrown out the rulebook. I hope you enjoy today's podcast and let's crack on. Peter, how's it been for you during all these changing times? Hi, Steve. Well, I have to say it's a particular pleasure to be sharing this podcast with you. Uh, because as I'm sure you remember, about a year ago, I actually came down with COVID and you were the person I turned to for advice. And you gave me very sound advice that basically said, it's going to take a very long time. This isn't flu, it's SARS or MERS. And uh, so it's proved and then some. And, and that in itself has implications, doesn't it? Because a lot of people have been affected by COVID infections, but a lot of people have been affected who haven't been infected, they've been affected by what has happened during COVID. And people have been socially isolating. What sort of issues have you been seeing arising because of that? I, I think you're absolutely right, Steve. That's a really good point. Somebody said we're all in the same boat. And the reply to that was, no, we're in the same storm, but we're all in different boats. And people have been affected in so many different ways, haven't they? Some it's by bereavement, some it's by illness, some it's financially, some it's socially, isolation. Um, most people have been impacted in one way or another. So certainly with my CCG hat on, 
we've seen a rise of around 25% overall in referral to mental health services. Uh, and there are particular hotspots. So in uh, older girls, younger women, eating disorders and body image problems have, have roughly doubled. Crikey. And I'm, so I'm sure you've seen the twice same. Twice as many in that age group. And, and that must be people who are, in a way, not exposed as much as they were to their friends, their colleagues, and, and society. They're not going out and, and engaging anymore. So why do you think we are getting into this situation? I suspect we're, oh, we'll only know the answer to that question in about 10 years' time when there have been lots of PhDs on it. Certainly the, the current theory is that the people who are particularly badly affected uh, around children, it's partly about uh, the fact that they're not seeing friends, they've lost that social support. It's partly around anxieties that they're missing out on educational opportunities. And for the group with the eating disorders, it seems to be that we see ourselves on Zoom so much that we're a lot more conscious of how we look. Thank goodness today is a podcast rather than a video cast. That's all I can say, because at least you can't see me in that sort of scenario. Well, as somebody um, who's got a, a good face for radio, I completely agree. Yes, that, that's, the, that's the professional term for it. But, but being very serious, I think we've, I, I saw the other day a 61% increase in domestic abuse in the United Kingdom since lockdown. Um, a lot of people having lost jobs, having their pension funds being reduced, and as you mentioned, losing friends will have had a tremendous impact. And I think also, although people haven't been able to get to pubs and other social places for drinking, I'm not sure if you're aware, but I suspect there's probably quite a lot more increased alcohol consumption going on. Absolutely. Uh, informally, it said we'll all emerge from this as hunks, chunks or drunks. But um, certainly, yes, both drug and alcohol use have gone up again, they think by about a third. And you mentioned domestic abuse. Now, that's obviously a, a tragedy for the, the people who are uh, victims of domestic abuse, but also it affects other members of the family. So we've seen quite a lot of children's mental health issues as a result of them witnessing violence or abuse uh, between other people in the household. And that's something I think that we'll be dealing with for a very long time. And have you got any tips for general practitioners, nurses, and those working in primary care on how to pick up these children? Because at the moment, they haven't been at school as much. Their teachers aren't providing the reports. They may have been in a home environment where, albeit they may have communication with iPads and other forms of technology, um, they probably are going to present to healthcare professionals over the next year or so with some of these symptoms. Any tips as to how we might be able to detect those people earlier? Mm. So children, a bit like older people, don't present saying, I feel anxious or I feel depressed. They tend to present with behavioral changes. So the main things to look for would be either a child who was previously fairly outgoing, who's become very shy and withdrawn, uh, or the opposite, somebody who was previously well-behaved, who's suddenly become had terrible behavior difficulties. So either of those two things would be red flags. Obviously, if children mention anything about disease or death or illness, that is a big red flag. But children tend not to do that. So it's really looking for a change from their normal behavior that would then prompt you to ask further questions. And you're absolutely right. I'm in touch with 
a lot of teachers who who were really concerned about kids who were previously under a view uh, with with known difficulties at home who've just completely dropped off the radar. Excellent. We've we also have along with our children a lot of people who've been asked to shield those with long term conditions those that are particularly vulnerable, and they have been shielding for perhaps a year a bit more now a lot of them and one of the things that I've noticed with that is quite a few patients are significantly less fit than they were they're deconditioned their food has been brought to them they've been having somebody come in to take the dog for a walk and their albeit limited activity has been reduced even further during this time but I guess the observations that we're seeing are also two other main groups. One is of social isolation for a lot of older people with long-term conditions at home who are vulnerable. And the second is we see when we speak to people on the phone is fear of the disease itself catching COVID uh, has had an impact. Can we just deal with each of those individually? So Mm. social isolation in this group? Yes, absolutely. And again, it, that mainly affects the elderly, doesn't it, who, who are at higher risk, and particularly those in nursing homes. And you're probably aware there's there's been this huge tragedy that people with dementia, for instance, are 10 times more likely to die from COVID if they get it. People with uh, learning uh, disabilities, again, are a very high risk group. Uh, and both of these groups have often been in institutions where they're unable to see their relatives and, and find that very, very difficult. So again, I think we'll be seeing the uh, the mental health impacts of that for, for many years to come, probably. Um, you mentioned lack of exercise, and we all know, don't we, how one of the main things that we can do is exercise and being out in nature. So the fact that people have had that taken away from them or severely restricted has made things extremely difficult for them. Uh, and again, I'm sure that will have long-term Uh, mental health as well as physical health impacts. Yes, and it's interesting to note that deconditioning has well-proven risks of increased infection, increased likelihood of falling, increased risk of other um, deconditioning type issues with it, uh, not counting the the mental health issues. And if if we go on to this fear of disease, we've seen a lot on the television, stay home, keep out the way, save the NHS, um, keep safe, we've had face masks. That's had a big impact on a lot of people who do perceive themselves as quite vulnerable. How are we going to see our way out of that in the current climate? I think you're right. And an interesting thing to mention is that I think the assumption has been that as we come out of lockdown, everybody's mental health will improve and things will gradually get back to normal. We're actually starting to see a subgroup of people who've actually felt quite comfortable isolated at home, people with social phobias, agoraphobia, that sort of thing. And they are, I think, going to really struggle as we try and claw our way back to some sort of normality. Um, I don't know what you think. To me, it feels as though speaking to people, there's going to be a mix of people. Some people are just desperate to get back, see their family, go on their foreign holiday, get back to normal. Another group are going to take it very, very gradually. Another, another group, I think, will remain fearful. And this legacy we've had of the continuous daily toll of deaths is, is going to continue impact on to impact on them, I think, for, for months and possibly even years ahead. 
I, th- I think you're spot on there. I think the you know the impact of um, a lot of this shielding is that people are now worried about going outside. They still are seeing cases. They know they're prone. They hear stories that the vaccine may not be quite as effective as they'd hoped, and they don't want to take that chance. And they've worked a year to keep out of the way of it. So I can see this having quite significant impacts on people moving forward. And we see that in day-to-day clinical practice when we speak to people and offer them appointments or interventions when they say... I. I don't think it's needed. And we're also seeing it in people presenting late with medical conditions because they didn't want to risk anything by going to the hospital because they'd heard quite a few people had caught it within that environment. So I think we have quite a big legacy to to try to manage as we move forward. I mentioned hospitals briefly there, and you mentioned carers in residential care. And I just wondered whether it's worthwhile talking about um, a lot of our colleagues who work in the health service and our colleagues in local nursing home and residential home care and those carers who've been really working hard during this COVID outbreak. And I think particularly about local residential homes where sometimes an infection has got in and the impact that has had on the mental health of those carers who have worked for years with friends that they've been caring for in these homes and suddenly find that the infection that has gone round that home has has caused a lot of their friends that they're caring for to have died. Are you seeing much of that at the moment? Definitely, as I'm sure you are. And again, there's a, a huge heterogeneity in the way that people are, are finding problems. So as you say, there's the complex bereavement made worse because we're not able to hold funerals and mark that person's passing. So we're not able to start the usual process of grieving. There's the guilt that people feel because they've not been able to protect the people that they're looking after and the really difficult situation that 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 presents. And I'm sure as you have, I've also seen people who've been put in a very difficult position that a lot of care workers who, as we know, are not well paid who are sometimes having to choose between themselves, either um, having relatives, uh, a husband or wife who is clinically vulnerable and where they're fearful of having taken that virus home to the person they love, weighed against the loss of income if they if they take time off work. And I've, I've seen some very, very distressed people in surgery, as I'm sure you have, who are trying to, to tackle these these difficult ethical dilemmas. I I think you're right. And I think the other thing that we're seeing quite a lot of is those seeing acute COVID worry about taking infections home and those in intensive care who are making very difficult decisions about how to intervene with a lot of these people are feeling very tired at the moment. So we have a duty to look after our own, if you like, those of us who are involved in the caring professions at this difficult time. They they are still very needy as we move through. Absolutely. And as carers, I again, I've got relatives who work in intensive care units and they're, they've been finding it incredibly difficult that whereas they might see, say, 10% of the people coming into them not making it out with COVID, they were seeing perhaps 60, 70, 80% of people uh, dying. And and that's, and it takes a huge toll, doesn't it? And we know in primary care, we've completely changed the way we work. And we're now being asked to get back to normal 
on top of doing all the COVID-related work as well. So I think we're, we've got a very exhausted and um, stressed workforce. If I, if I paraphrase a local intensivist that I was talking to, he said, I'm feeling shattered. I'm up a lot of nights giving advice to my uh, clinician colleagues on intensive care. I've been doing that for several months. I've been working hard. And now I'm getting emails saying, uh, we're going to have a lot of anesthetic work to get through when we get back to operating. I hope you're all getting ready and itching to get going. And he's just thinking, I need a break from this. Absolutely. We, we will have a lot of people in that sort of situation. Perhaps if we move on to COVID itself, um, one of the things and thinking about intensive care is the the well-recognised impact on people who've been through that post-traumatic stress type environment um, that hopefully are being managed in a specialist care system with follow-up at the moment. But there are a lot of people who've developed COVID symptoms that persist. And again, their mental health, I'm sure, hasn't been as good as it could have been um, whilst they've been trying to fight off their symptoms. Any thoughts about that? Yes. Um, my first thought is actually you're more of an expert on me than than this because you've set up our local long COVID clinic and are hugely involved in caring for those people. Um, I think the main point I would want to stress is that if we see somebody with long COVID presenting with anxiety, we don't gaslight them. We don't try and imply that their symptoms are due to anxiety or depression. So my SATs dropped to 60 something percent. Uh, and I felt as though I was drowning for about three days. So I think I've got a bit of post-traumatic uh, stress disorder myself uh, because every time I, I, I can't take a breath, then I get panicky because I remember how that felt. Um, but I think if somebody suggested to me that my, uh, my ongoing long COVID symptoms are psychosomatic, I would just point them to my echocardiogram that shows that actually I've got a reduced ejection fraction and, and sats that remain low. So I think that's the number one, is let's acknowledge that people who've particularly been in intensive care and um, who've, who've been through the trauma of that are going to be damaged. And we know the figures are, again, about 20 to 30% of people will have significant anxiety or depression following that. But let's not try and suggest that their symptoms are due to that. We need to somehow offer support without suggesting that. I don't know. Does that does that make sense, Steve? It, it does. And I guess probably the tip that I'd have from working in um, COVID recovery clinics and seeing people who have had symptoms for a long period of time and hopefully are slowly improving, and that's where we're trying to facilitate that improvement, is that they have been changed if they were able to run 10 kilometers and now down to 800 yards six months later that's a major change in one's life if you're not able to concentrate and do a full day's work anymore because of the impact of this disease it has a mental health issue on people and i guess probably what i think with that is it is really important we understand that these symptoms that people get are real and they are very persistent, and there's no doubt about that. And we've actually seen that with SARS, and we've seen that with MERS, and we've seen that with other infections like influenza and glandular fever over many, many years. So incontroversial, really, what we see in this pattern. If people aren't having any emotional health issues around that dramatic change to their life, probably they should be seeing a psychiatrist. That wouldn't be normal. 
they should actually be impacted by the symptoms and the disability that they've suddenly found themselves in. And in a way, that's one of the stances that I've taken in the clinic is to talk to people about that sort of, I would expect this. In fact, it would be odd if you didn't have any impact on your life because your life has changed. And is there any way we can try and help and support that? Because there are things that our, our therapist colleagues, talking therapies can do to help with that. I think that's absolutely right. And to me, it, it's almost like going through a bereavement, that you're you're grieving for the person that you you were and are no longer. And, and you have to go through those same stages of bereavement uh, to mourn the loss of your former self. We know a lot of people with long COVID previously were very fit and did marathons and things like that. And, and now every day is a struggle. So those people, as you say, if they're, if they're not impacted, um, then there's something wrong with them. I would put in a plug. We we're talking about older people and the effect on them. They're a group who actually do particularly well with talking therapies uh, and actually medical treatment as well. So a, a lot of they're underrepresented in our talking therapies clinics, but actually they stick with talking therapies. They have better outcomes. So my message would be, don't just ignore this. Do refer people for talking therapies. And I would definitely go for the talking therapies approach rather than drug approach as first line in this area. I'd, I'd thoroughly agree with you. And I think having good support from talking therapies and, and psychological therapies is absolutely vital as we move forward in this. I think they're going to, they are finding they've got a lot of work on at the moment and they will be a vital support in helping people to move forwards. But there are also a variety of techniques that are being used online for some of our colleagues uh, and patients at the moment to help to support that. Can I give a plug to our own Somerset Emotional Wellbeing podcast uh, that tries to look at, at that and is a resource that's freely available. We've got people as far afield as New Zealand and Australia who listen in. So it's it's not just Somerset residents. So if you want to give that a try, we cover, cover a number of different things, including grief and bereavement and things that we can do to support our emotional well-being. And Peter, have you by any small chance been involved in this podcast? Funny you should mention that, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I co-host it with, with Andrew. Uh, I'm afraid the um, the revenue I get from it is the same as the one I get from the previous plug of the uh, Older People's Mental Health Primer. So there's no financial rewards in this, but uh, it, it's been very interesting. And we've heard some very moving stories. And I think in, what's inspired me is hearing people not necessarily who've been damaged by COVID, but have been through really difficult life events and have learnt ways of coming through them changed, but stronger. That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Peter. And Andrew Tresseder is a, a general practitioner who has quite an interest in health and well-being and has done that for a while. I've listened to one of Peter's web um, podcasts and they really are worthwhile going for. So please give that a try if you've got the time. But again, just remember when you're out there, let's take care of ourselves, let's take care of our colleagues, and let's make sure that we get through this together. And if you want to know more about the uh, long-term conditions and chronic conditions, remember May, remember a series of meetings during May that I hope will be of great interest to you. Thanks everybody for listening. I hope you found this useful. I certainly found it very enlightening speaking to Peter. Please make sure you register 
not only for more of these podcasts in the series, which are very interactive, linked in with different long-term conditions, but also our interactive webcasts brought to you as part of the Chronic Conditions Month. You can sign up at chroniconditions.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Thanks very much, Steve.